it's over 9,000! Welcome, Super Elite Warriors, to Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Frieza Force, on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time. And I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host. That's the beginning. He's taking this whole thing very seriously. Communicating over our scouters to our troops as if they don't know how to defend themselves. Nobody knows how to defend against dreadnoughts. An armada like this hasn't been seen in centuries. Nice of you to join our conversation here. You can't handle that the attention is off you for a bit, can you? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you trying to imply that I need to be at the center of attention? I need a great many things. Food shelter, a long, fruitful life, the feeling of accomplishment, knowing that I'm helping to make the world a better place, to be the center of attention, but I do not support or condone pedophilia. What? What? energy cannon you distracted me i wouldn't dare concentrate fire on the dreadnoughts leave the transport be listeners since we last spoke we have been under constant siege the dreadnoughts are truly impressive to behold and have now taken out over 50 percent of our ground forces almost 75 percent right over 50 percent Anyway, their cyborg weapons implants are impressive and turn these majestic creatures into truly nightmarish behemoths. They've maintained a constant barrage of heavy artillery fire. The northern shipyard is gone! Although they have yet to begin any ground invasion, with the majority of the carbivore forces remaining in cover behind the transport Ventuvi. Not 
down. Just one left, and then the transport. We've got this, boys. The battle has been hard fought, but we're on a clear path to victory. Another heavy cannon gone. We've got two. Make that one left. The dreadnought's heavily damaged, though. Concentrate all remaining firepower. We shall prevail. Your ability to remain calm is so unnerving. I know something the carbivore do not. And what's that? Yes! We hit its core processor. It will electrically overload and... It fell right on our last cannon. We have no way to down the cruiser. Our forces are nearly depleted with no long-range communications. We're doomed. Excuse me for a moment, listeners. Where are you going? Stay away from there. We have no defenses. If you open the bay doors, the shields automatically go down. We'll be sitting ducks for the cruiser's energy beam. Stop, you lunatic! You're going to get us all disintegrated! Steady blast! I... I don't believe it. That's my special technique. I call it the Zeri Blast. The cruiser obliterated everything but its head. Indeed. So, uh, can we talk about this week's topic of discussion already? Uh. Excellent. This week, we'll be talking about episodes 11 and 12. Um, 11 and 12 of the Red Ribbon Army saga, I think, but it's episodes. Oh, let me find out now. I believe it's 37 and 38. Yes, it's 37 and 38. I don't even know if that's 11 and 12 of the Red Ribbon Army Saga. It is episodes 37 and 38 of the the Dragon Ball anime. Ninja Murasaki is coming and the five Murasakis. Uh, the, these are two episodes focused around Goku battling Ninja Murasaki. So if you remember, he fought through level one of... Well, actually, it was what it was it? It was level three technically, right? Yeah. Of of Muscle Tower, and he fought the uh, totally not the Terminator. He will not be back. And uh, now he's moved on to level four. No one has ever made it to level four, and he's going to battle a ninja. He's walking around this fourth level, and it's a lush greenery. All of a sudden, five or three or whatever some knives come flying at him he hops and avoids them and you know this this voice taunts him is like haha you'll never see me coming and throws more knives and goku dodges them because that's what goku does he's got excellent reflexes and supernatural it's like, speeds it's almost like he's trained for fighting or something right murasaki is like, oh, I don't know how you're dodging me, but you'll still never find me. And Goku, does he pick up a rock and like just chucks it into the into the trees? Yes, nails him first shot. <laughs> and he's like, there you are. Murasaki's like, oh, how'd you find me? And he's like, I could, I could smell you or something. And he's like, well, 
I have ninja powers, so go hide or go go behind that tree and, and start counting to thirty, and I'll, I'll hide. You'll never be able to find me. As Goku's counting, he reaches like twenty nine, and he's like, "Hey, what comes after twenty nine or or twenty eight, whatever it is?" And he turns around, and Murasaki's about to try to hide under a rock, and he's like, "Oh, you turned around. You ruined it." Now twenty nine comes next, and then thirty after that. Go count again. And Goku goes and counts again. And when he comes back and looks around, he spots Murasaki easily because he's hiding behind an American flag. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I used the wrong side. It was supposed to be tree bark print on both sides. Um, like they then kind of, they, they kind of, is, is it, is the next thing, the part where he walks on water? Is that the very next part? No, I think it's, is it the tatami mats first? In any event, some of the things that happen in the course of this <laughs> battle are that Murasaki then challenges Goku like, oh, I'm going to walk on water. And he like walks across this lake. He uses a, it's like a ninja tactic to walk across this lake. Goku just jumps across it because there's piranha in it. Then he does the thing where, yes, Goku picks up a bunch of the shuriken stars and starts throwing them at Murasaki. And he picks up the tatami mats and, and lifts them up and blocks them uh then he does the thing where he's gonna hide again and he's under the water and goku realizes he's under there because he can hear him breathing through the through the bamboo straw <laughs> he pours the boiling hot water down the straw yes i was like that man's dead <laughs> and, it, and it culminates in him being like oh i'm gonna use the 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 multiplication technique against you and there's all of a sudden five of them they start fighting Goku, and it turns out that they're they're just five brothers. And then this episode, the, the episode thirty eight, ends with Murasaki more or less admitting defeat, but being like, "Oh, I will um, now. I'm going to unleash this thing against you, and it's a giant Frankenstein looking monster." And we'll we'll talk more about that guy next time. That's those are the the episodes. They're they're just basically Goku fighting. Ninja Murasaki, and so today we're going to be focusing on talking about Ninja Murasaki. So in the Japanese text, his name is actually Master Sergeant Murasaki. Uh, the name Murasaki is derived from the Japanese word for purple, which is also pronounced Murasaki. Toriyama uses katakana rather than the kanji, so it's not exactly the same. He's the only named member of the Red Ribbon Army whose name is derived from the Japanese rather than an approximation of the English word for a color. He's also the only named member of the Red Ribbon Army who is Japanese rather than Westerner, so it kind of makes sense. His top knot represents his status as a warrior. It's similar to a, and I hope I'm saying this right, a konmage? I have no idea. <laughs> I, hope, I hope that's right. If I'm wrong, please don't be too mad at me. In the Edo period of Japan, when daimyo, when there was like a daimyo and the samurai class uh, who were lords and, and enforcers respectively, it was a hairstyle that showed one's status as a warrior. Those who could afford it and had the necessary tools would shave the tops of their heads, which would allow the kabuto helmet to rest more comfortably and securely atop one's head during battle. And it's also been suggested that the long ponytail-like hair that's tied at the back be threaded through a hole in the helmet and then secured in order to hold the helmet more even more firmly in place when the samurai class was abolished in the late 19th century laws were passed outlawing the the konmage and technically those laws have never been repealed yeah and samurai still wear like a version of that or not samurai i said samurai but sumo 
sumo wrestlers still wear yes, a, 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 a version of it. They don't shave the tops of their heads anymore, although um, it's been suggested that some of them might or do or can, but I think they're just balding. It, but they still do wear it, which is funny because then technically all these sumo wrestlers are, you know, breaking a law that's on the books. But who's um, going to stop them? They're too big. <laughs> and and it's still an important piece of their history because as part of a sumo wrestler's retirement ceremony, he cuts off his his ponytail. Yeah, it's still it's still an important piece of, of Japanese culture today. Uh, but Murasaki... For, for his part, he looks pretty similar to the character Unosuke from Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo. It's a movie I haven't seen yet. I'm actually working my way through the Kurosawa catalog. I just recently watched I Live in Fear. I've only I, ever seen uh, Seven Samurai. Seven it's Samurai fantastic, is awesome. Fantastic movie. I would, I would, I, I can give you like a, like, I don't have it handy, really. Like, a list of other really good ones. Although, I did just recently watch Ikiru, which is also translated as, like, To Live. That one's really good. It's it's kind of depressing. But what I'll say is, of the ones I've seen so far, which if you, you can go and easily look up his filmography, the one that, like, surprised me the most that I liked was a an earlier one called One Wonderful Sunday, which is just about these two younger people who are dating each other in early post-war Japan trying to have a nice day out. And that's all that it is. It's just like this little slice of life, but it's just like this like very kind of tragically beautiful movie. Okay, I could see that. So that's 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 one I'll say. I never heard anyone talk about that one, right? Everyone talks about Ron and Yojimbo and Sanjuro and Throne of Blood and Hidden Fortress and Seven Samurai and Kagemusha, and you never hear anyone say anything about One Wonderful Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I, was just like... I'll be honest, this is the first time I've heard of it, but it sounds great. Yeah, it's it's really cool. But so back to... Back to Murasaki. The the comparison to Yojimbo is further emphasized in the battle with Goku when he, you know, splits into five. Or, well, there's five brothers. One of the brothers has a gun and so looks even more like the gunslinger in Yojimbo. Nice. Uh, his speech patterns in the Japanese are somewhat old-fashioned. We've talked about how, you know, Japanese language can be structured a lot of times and very polite. And he adds a lot of flair to the end words of his speech and his speech patterns that denote this to Toriyama's Japanese readers. He's inspired by old school samurai and ninja with his speech. So he's a killer, but at least he's pretty polite about it. There's some potential social commentary being made with him. And we'll touch on that when we get a little bit later, but his most likely source of more direct inspiration, aside from the character design from Yojimbo, is the Bond film You Only Live Twice. It's partially set in Japan, and Toriyama is a big Bond fan, and we know he's seen this movie. So he most likely sees this evil organization, which in Bond is Spectre, and here we have the Red Ribbon Army, having ninja henchmen, and he more or less just cribs the idea. The most obvious moment where he's doing so is when Murasaki reveals he has the lake full of piranha, and that's similar to Blofeld 
having a tank of piranha that he uses to dispatch his bumbling and oafish henchmen who fail him. So when you break a lot of this stuff down, right, it's it's pretty simple. You don't have to even really super read too deep into this to find a lot of these similarities. But it's this way that Toriyama creates new things. He mixes multiple cultures to create something new. And, and just right here, you have a Japanese ninja working for an evil Western James Bond villain who controls a communist red army to fight a monkey demigod derived from Hindu culture. It's a little all over the place, but I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's cool though, right? It's like it's it's weird because it's not super complicated, but it's at the same time kind of a lot to unpack. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's how you get this this new feel from old stuff. It's also how um, you get this podcast. <laughs> and and Murasaki also is a series of stereotypes just jammed into one character, which are then just constantly undercut by Goku. So Toriyama's got this ninja character, and by God, he's going to get as many ninja jokes as he possibly can. It's Toriyama just poking fun at his own cultural heritage. And honestly, it's kind of interesting how those jokes still sort of transcend cultural barriers. Because, like, I mean, I watch it. I laughed all through both these episodes. They were great. Loved them. The the one, like, the the best joke in terms of, like, a total stereotype that transcends cultures to me is the the bamboo straw air thing. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. I've seen that so many times, even in in cartoons as, as a young one. Right, and and just the way the way it's played here with the like that the breathing in the background constantly the the, the Vader sound effect. <laughs> yeah, yeah that that one like that one is is a stereotype that has transcended the culture so much. The the tatami mats, which I think we we're going to talk about a little bit more later, is one that it it's de- that one is definitely f- funnier when you know the 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 culture kind of behind Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yes. But yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of really good I mean cuz ninjas are in western movies all the time and I mean sure. that's Toriyama watches a ton of those. So he's riffing on the stereotypes that he sees of us riffing on his culture. <laughs> Yeah, wow, that's pretty meta. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> but while he's riffing, he's also sticking to a lot of his signature style in that this conflict between the two of them is more opposites clashing as Goku's a more focused, direct, head-on fighter, and Murasaki will do literally anything to avoid a direct conflict. So when Goku struck in the head by the boomerang blade and knocked out, uh, we're getting like a little callback to Journey to the West – you guys remember Journey to the West, right? It's this, you know, really old story we might have mentioned once or twice. Uh, but at one point in the story, Sun Wukong is fighting with Lao Tzu, the, the founder of Taoism, uh, an obviously fictionalized version, not the actual man, uh, <laughs> and is struck on the head by Lao Tzu's uh, diamond bracelet. Sun Wukong is momentarily knocked unconscious, but everyone assumes he's dead due to Lao Tzu's known power. But Sun Wukong stands right back up. In the manga, uh, Toriyama has Murasaki tell Goku his head must be diamond hard to kind of just help drive that connection into his readers. 
as Goku's throwing the shuriken at Murasaki and he's blocking them with the mats. This is getting into the tatami thing we were talking about just a second ago. There are a couple things happening. Uh, first, shuriken literally means knives from within the hands. And the way that they're thrown and the way that they can in the right hand sort of seem to simply appear from nowhere. Uh, it's a very appropriate name. Uh, second is the mats. Uh, in traditional Japanese home, the floor mats, which are called tatami, come in two sizes. But rooms are outlined in one of three ways. So there's it's it these tatami come in in preset sizes, and then they kind of arrange them to fill the space in a room. Again, this is traditional. So there's a setup for eight mats. There's one for six, and there's one for four and a half. Murasaki's little house has a 4.5 size room, and when he runs out of mats, he curses that he has so few. And it's just kind of funny because in a moment where he's having knives thrown at him and facing potential death, he really wishes he had a bigger house. Yeah. <laughs> that is a great, like, when I when I kind of learned about that, I was like, that's an awesome joke. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good one, especially once you know the context. Yeah. And the last little bit of trivia here about Murasaki is the, the brothers who split off of him are never named in either the on the the anime the the anime or the manga get my os my a sounds correct but in supplemental materials they are given names corresponding to the colors blue red brown and blue green that when you mix those specific shades of those colors together make a shade of purple so they're the five brothers who come together to form one person which reminds me a little bit of the movie The Prestige. Oh, yeah. hundred um, percent. Spoiler alert for a movie that at this point is... Is very old. <laughs> 20, is it? Is it probably like 20 years old? Uh, 2006 it came out in. Okay, so it's like... So... Fi- it's over 15 years old. Yeah. So spoiler alert for a movie that's over 15 years old. Christian Bale's character... All throughout the movie we think is just this, this guy who's a rival to... to Hugh Jackman, and it turns out it's twin brothers who've been living half of a life each to make all 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 to make their their trick work. Yes, it's awesome. It's an awesome awesome movie. Um, and that's yeah, that's what this kind of reminds me of, you know. And obviously, this predates that. And there's obviously, I I don't know if there's anything that that this is specifically. Rip, riffing on in terms of that i i can't think of anything and and i can't i haven't r- come across anything looking on uh space internet <laughs> I, I don't know i don't i'm not gonna say that that christopher nolan was inspired by dragon ball necessarily but we're um, also not not saying that yeah true but i think it it's also i think is just one of those things that becomes like an old uh, like an old wives' tale or something, almost of you know, brothers each living half of a life to like further some end type of thing. I don't know. It, seem, it seems kind of like Grimm's fairy tales to me. It sounds like it, and that it's it's cool, but at the same time a little depressing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that accurate? Uh, yeah, more than a little, especially in terms of the prestige. <laughs> Uh, I, I tend to downplay my uh, my reaction to things. Oh, I, guess. I mean, I 
I I like that it's a, a bit of a downer though. So, sure. uh, <laughs> um, another another quick note on, on Murasaki. So, like we talked about, he's like you know playing on these stereotypes and the and the the bamboo stuff. The the walking on water one is another typical kind of ninja stereotype. Now, Murasaki does it a little bit differently than what is the stereotype. But again, it's just Toriyama just kind of having fun with it. In the stereotype, they use like these big shoes that just kind of displace the water. It's like snowshoes. Yeah. But Murasaki just kind of can run across the water because he's a good ninja. Then, you know, you get you get that. And then Goku just immediately undercuts it by jumping over the whole last lake. <laughs> um, well, even when he's even when he's fighting the five brothers full on, uh, he starts to use the after image technique that we see him use in the the martial arts tournament. And these guys are like, "Oh, holy crap! He can actually do the, the splitting form technique." <laughs> I also really liked how the build up to Murasaki is like talking about how he's so deadly and dangerous. And then we actually see him in action, and he, he's, I mean, he's essentially a gag character. Yeah. Keep in mind, too, that one of the big things with, with Muscle Tower, the whole arc, and and this, this is something that Toriyama does a lot when he starts introducing, like, big boss villains into his story, is each obstacle each like like mini boss each mini boss along the way represent is representative of like a different part of the main boss's personality or or psychology right okay yeah i could see that and so through murasaki and his battle with goku we learn that general white who is you know over this over all of muscle tower wishes that murasaki was more direct and so you know we learn that he values a direct fight we also learn that he values power over over trickery right because i I would almost say that he almost values the appearance of strength more than actual strength right and we get that from just these quick little moments where he's viewing he's viewing the battle between Goku and Murasaki, and he's like, "Oh, why won't he just fight him directly?" Or, you know, why does he look so stupid? Whatever. But in the moments when he thinks Murasaki has the upper hand, he'll say something like, "Oh, well, he might look stupid, but at least he gets results." So we also know that White values results True. over over appearance a little bit. But he does value appearance. An ends justifies the means type fellow. Yes. Which, hmm, in a in a, a commander in an army that's based on uh, fascist and communist militaries that justifies the the ends via the means, huh? Huh. <laughs> I see. I see no parallels here. <laughs> um, so let's let's have a, a little bit more of a discussion here, because that's what we like to do, of course. And talk a little bit more about about Murasaki and whether he's a social commentary, right? Is he a comment on Japanese salaryman culture? He's he is a ninja. He's inspired by samurai, 
they're known to have important codes of honor. So is Toriyama saying that this once noble individual is now selling himself out to Westerners to enjoy modern comforts at the price of his dignity and honor? Is he making a statement about Japan and its prosperity in the post-war years? Is he talking about, you know, how how the past may have been better than the present or the future? I'm going to go with the knowing what we know about Toriyama, it's somewhat unlikely <laughs> that this was intended, right? And yeah, even if it was, he would never admit it. Also right? true. He, he, he admits to nothing. <laughs> but we've also talked about in the past, just because you don't intend to do something doesn't mean you're not doing it. So just by creating something, you're revealing something about yourself. And Toriyama is, you know, quote unquote, a student of filmmakers like Kurosawa and mm -hmm. Ishiro Honda, men who through their films were often critical of Japanese salaryman lifestyle. And just to, to contextualize salaryman a little bit, I think we've talked about this before when we talked about Toriyama's like biography of what a salary man is, but it's, it's a somewhat like prototypical white collar worker goes into the office every day, tries to climb the corporate ladder driven by money, defined by their job. Anyone who works or has worked in an office knows someone like this, a, a corporate drone, if you will. Yes. I think you can read Murasaki that way. I, I, I agree. And I'd even go I'd even go so far as to say it, it's more than just the idea of selling yourself to Westerners to to enjoy the creature comforts, um, because also uh, something I noticed in these episodes is like Goku finds the house in, in the hill. He checks it out and everything. And Murasaki himself, like he has this house, but he spends so little time in it and so much time at his job. And I feel like that's also a little bit of a commentary on that salaryman lifestyle because the stereotype, if you will, is that Japanese people work very hard to the point where they spend more time at work than at home. So I thought that was maybe a little bit of a commentary on, you know, not only are you selling your honor to get money from Westerners to get these creature comforts, but you're also working yourself so hard you don't even bother to enjoy them. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we know from Toriyama's biography that he, and from his own little admissions and these little notes he would write um, as like introductions to various chapters of this manga and when he was doing, oh man, I wish I could remember the name of the, remember we, t we, we talked about like he had to occasionally do like little one shots? Yeah. I can't remember that, but but he'd have these little uh, Wonder Island. I think was one of the ones we talked about, but I'm not sure if that's what you're looking for. No, just there was like a name for a one shot manga. Oh, um, but he had these. He has these little intro barbs, like this, just where he's got the the Tory bot saying like a little. Oh, this is my. I wrote this. You know, whatever, and. We know from those things and from interviews he gave that he hated working a desk job. Right. And that he he hates the idea. Like, he hates work in general. 
and I can empathize with that. Um, but yes, he, you know, Toriyama definitely does not like the idea of having poor work-life balance. Right. And so you see, you know, that's one of those things. You see that bleed into his work. You see that come through these characters that, especially a, a character like Murasaki, where he's painting this guy as not someone to emulate, <laughs> you know? Right, uh, yeah. Here's a guy who who cares more about his job than than anything else, and like yeah, and and at the expense of everything else, and the, you know that's even the other thing, right? Is he cares so much about his job that he forgot to ever build a bigger house for himself, <laughs> to which then would have given him more tatami mats. There you go. It's come full circle. <laughs> so so yeah, so it, it's it it bleeds into your work when when you have that, and I. I just think it's uh it's it's kind of an interesting uh bit of bit of commentary on on the, this salary man culture which I think has I don't I don't want to get on too much of a soapbox here but it it has <laughs> that has bled into western culture big time. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um anyone who's anyone who's ever worked in an office, I think can understand that you know there's 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 always pressure to want a better job and better pay and better this and better that better and... co-workers <laughs> Pre- present company excluded oh well we don't work in an office man well that i mean we do have that going for us um <laughs> but no it's uh yeah it's I saw I saw a thing shared on uh, space social media the other day of my grandmother was it was like it was like my grandmother was a secretary and she was educated, but she just liked doing scheduling and taking kind of those cold calls that come in from people who don't know who they're supposed to be calling. And she just liked kind of helping with with that level of responsibility and she would always be asked by her superiors oh so you're applying for a secretary but you're like you're well educated so you you want to do this for a couple years and then move on and make more money and that and she was like no i just i like this (laughs) and that's that's a concept that has never taken root in corporate cultures at all yeah and as far as corporate culture yeah i'd agree with that but I do, I do think there's definitely a growing number of people who want to to find a job that kind of like gives them a little bit of fulfillment or that they actually enjoy doing. Yeah. So, and that's all within this funny purple ninja, right? Right. That's right. Yeah. No, it was totally, <laughs> totally intentional. We're not, we're not reading into this at all. I mean, we have a whole podcast about this. We gotta. I'll find something to talk about. Hey, I think it was a valid comparison. Like I said, I, I've never wanted this show to just be, oh, the art was cool and the fight was cool. There's a million Dragon Ball podcasts and YouTube content creators you can follow if you want that. <laughs> but if you want us to sit here and, and talk about uh, Japanese salarymen, you're in the right place. And then you could also watch King Kong versus Godzilla because I got to get our requisite Godzilla name. There we go. In. The streak is still alive. 
Which is a funny, it's a funny salaryman comedy in a Godzilla movie. And that's, things can be more than one, one thing. This can be a cool, funny gag manga character, but it can also be a, a social commentary. That's right. This exercise in philosophy has been brought to you by the light, mighty Lord Frieza. I think that's all I got for today. I don't know if you have anything else on Murasaki you wanted to talk about. I think I got it all out there. I'm pretty happy. We don't really ever see him again, do we? No, I don't think we do. Pretty, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, unless maybe he's like in a in a background in a panel or well, something in the manga that I haven't found yet. In the next character, doesn't Android Eight like punch him into the sun or something? <laughs> <laughs> I would not be surprised. But no, I don't think he. You know, when when we first were kind of doing this, and this character was coming up, I had a, a brain fart and I thought he was, I thought he was the same character as mercenary Tao for a minute. Oh, I could see how you would make that mistake. Uh, and I was the, like, oh, the only, he... the only difference is that Tao is actually competent. Yes. <laughs> and it, it mostly was just like, I saw the, the name title and it said Ninja Murasaki. And I, and it's been, it's been a hot minute since I've been through the dragon ball portion yeah. of dragon ball. You're not the only one here. And I was like, oh, that's that guy who comes back as like a weird cyborg type thing later? Not quite. But no, that's Mercenary Tao. More on him down the road. Yeah, he's in this. He's in the Red Ribbon Army, right? I think he is. I don't think he's in this first portion of it. I think he's in like the. I always associate him with Corrin's Tower. Isn't that Commander Red? I can never keep the general straight. I don't remember. <laughs> it's before the next tournament saga, right? Uh, I think so. Ooh, listen, listen to us. Yeah, no, we're totally experts on this. <laughs> now, as for when Mercenary Tau comes back, I don't even have a blind wild guess on in our, that one. In our defense, though... This is not an episode about Mercenary Tau, and I'm having to pull all of this straight from my brain, which doesn't always work the best sometimes. It's all that head trauma from the punching and the screaming. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so hang on. Can I say something? Saying things is why we're here, so yeah. Well, first of all, I don't know if you've noticed uh, or care, but the ground invasion has started. Our remaining ground troops ought to be enough to handle most of their fighters, and what few make it through, we should be able to mop up easily. We're almost done here. Yeah, I kind of figured. But secondly, uh, just what is your battle power? You've always suppressed it around me, but I saw my scouter jump over 100,000 when you were standing out there. I honestly don't know. That was the highest level of energy I've ever put out. Might have been a bit much. We won't be able to salvage anything from that cruiser. Good thing we got all those dreadnoughts we can comb through for tech. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, but hey, third of all, and possibly most importantly, I feel like I've had a minute to process what just happened earlier, and are you saying you could have walked out there the instant these things showed up, done your Zeri Blast a few times, and then finished the whole thing in minutes? 
Well, no, not exactly. You saw, it takes me a little bit to charge it up. I have to get my gelatinous cells all churning inside and focused on a singular energy point instead of swirling around as they usually do. Also, I've only ever done it twice in quick succession. A third would possibly drain my energy reserves to where I'd be unable to fight for much longer. I would have needed to wait at least until the first seven or so dreadnoughts went down. We lost a few more heavy cannons and hundreds of men after that, though. Yeah, so? So? Are those lives just expendable to you? Expendable? In that exact word? Yes. But hey, look at it from my point of view. Which is? It made for an entertaining episode of the show. Wow. I knew you'd see it my way. We'll take our leave of you here, listeners. Uh, we may have a slight problem here. I'm sure it's nothing we can't handle. Maybe physically, but I don't know how good I'm going to feel about actively killing our own troops. What the hell are you talking about? The carbivores are shooting out, I don't know, tendrils from their palms? For lack of a better word. And stabbing our troops in the head. So, the carbivores are killing our troops. We'll head out as soon as we're done here to help mop up. Our troops aren't staying down once they get stabbed, though. It's like something is getting into their brains, and they're turning on each other. And they're targeting us. Will we be able to withstand this barrage from our own troops? Will we have the courage to fight back? Find out next time and help us achieve our final forum. written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership. <laughs>